have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. And if you don't have your Bible, you can see quite a few Scripture passages on the sermon outline uh, in your bulletin. And our starting text today is Hebrews 13, the fourth verse. One verse that leads us to others. And we read, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So far the reading of God's Word. I read a story this week about a woman, we'll call her Sally. And Sally had borrowed a book from her friend. Her girlfriend had loaned her this book, and she wanted to return it and went over to to her friend's house, and her friend wasn't home. But her friend's husband was, and actually he was working in the garage uh, in his workshop, woodworking. And apparently he was a master craftsman, and he was building this beautiful shelf uh, for their kitchen, And she saw what he was doing and said, this is fascinating, and you really have a gift. Tell me about this. And so they talked for about an hour. And as they finished up their conversation, he said to her, you know, thank you for your interest. My wife would never let me go on and talk like this. And she said, oh, I think you're fantastic in what you can do. And then she got in her car and left. And as she was driving, she got flushed. She got energized. And she said to herself, you know, I think I'm attracted to him. And I think he's attracted to me. And she began to imagine the scenario until suddenly she stopped herself and she started remembering verses from the Bible, like this one. The marriage bed should be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And what was happening inside Sally was this fusion of flattery that was going both ways and this excitement about a a relationship that for a moment, it seems, at least was better than the one she had. But she remembered that in Proverbs 5, it speaks about the adulteress, which she for a moment had entertained becoming. And it says, her doors lead to Sheol, and those who go in that way lead to death. And this verse, marriage should be honored by all, actually became a moment for her to say, I need to honor my girlfriend's marriage just as I need to honor my own. And she said, I decided right at that moment, no more unannounced visits to their house. Adultery. The Bible warns us about the danger of it in many places. 
And our first point, our first point comes right from this text, that marriage should be honored by all. Now, you and I know if you've been half awake a third of the time during this series on marriage that we've been enjoying in our study together, that God instituted marriage before Adam and Eve fell into sin, that marriage uh, was created and it was created good, a part of His good creation. And so you have this relationship between one man and one woman in a covenant of companionship, a partnership with all these benefits and a whole lot of responsibilities. But the benefits, we said, the benefits, what are they? They are that we live together in this partnership shoulder to shoulder and face to face. Right? Remember that? Shoulder to shoulder, two people pulling together in harness to face life together. And intimacy, face to face, intellectual, spiritual, and to be sure, sexual intimacy. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so, the, the Bible tells us that we should honor the institution of marriage from Genesis to Revelation. It tells us, honor the institution of marriage, but this particular text is not simply talking about the whole institution of marriage. It's telling us that we should honor marriage in a way that keeps us from falling into adultery and into sexual immorality. That's really the thrust of this right here. And the woman Sally in this story, that's not a real name again, but the, 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 in this story, this verse then was used to guard her own heart about how she lived. There are many, uh, many ways to think about this, but point number two, you see it in the outline, is simply this. God made the marriage bed. And God's Word tells us that the marriage bed is good. And I think this is important to review as a Christian family, as a church family. This is important to review uh, simply because um, so often we Christians are caricatured by the world as those defined simply by what we're against. Well, you are the people against any sexual fun, and you're the Christians against expressions of sexuality, and we need to say, now wait just a minute, no, no, no. God made sex, and God made it good, and sex is ours. The world has taken it and corrupted it. Satan has taken it and corrupted it. But when it is experienced God's way, the marriage bed is great and good. And so, this point, point number two, is that you and I we who are married and those who are unmarried need to celebrate our sexuality with joy and with holiness in the context of marriage. And so that means if you're not yet married and maybe you haven't even met the, the person who's going to be your spouse, nonetheless, you're going to honor your marriage now by living a life of holiness and, and uh and sexual chastity until marriage, and then in the marriage bed you are going to enjoy that and honor your marriage. Now, let me take you with me into my counseling office. 
Because whenever a couple gets engaged and they want me to perform their marriage, I say, well, we need to talk about what you think marriage is all about. And we talk about finances and we talk about communication and how to argue and resolve conflict and forgiveness. But we also talk at some length about the marriage bed, about sex. It's usually later on in the counseling process. They want to get to it. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Let me tell you what we learn together, what we review from Scripture about the marriage bed. Four words. They start with the letter R. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down so you can teach them to your children or your grandchildren. Here we go. That first thing you need to know is that sex is relational. Sex is relational. And that means it's in the context of the relationship of marriage. Because when two people are sexually involved, according to the Bible, it's like a drama where one person says to the other person, I'm giving myself completely to you, naked, unashamed, and eager in order to bless you and for you to bless me and for us to enjoy each other in this covenant completely. I give myself to you. And you see, if you say that, and then can walk out the back door tomorrow morning and say, see you later, goodbye, we're done. You've just lied to the person that you said, I'm giving myself completely to you. God's design is for sex to be relational. And I told you a number of weeks ago that sex is like super glue, right? It's like super glue. It is like a covenant bonding adhesive that unites two people together. And so when you, you take super glue and, you, and it gets spread out in ways that is not intended, what happens? It makes a terrible mess, doesn't it? Super glue used in the wrong way makes a terrible mess. And so it's relational. But it is that moment when you say, I'm giving myself completely to you, naked, unashamed, for your blessing and your pleasure, for our union, to signify our union. It's relational. Second thing you need to know is that sex in the Bible is reproductive. And God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. And so there is this uh, magnificent biological and physiological transaction that occurs between a man and a woman in order to be fruitful and multiply. It's called sexual intercourse. And that, that act, that act is very biological. And it is exquisite. And it requires some measure of understanding. I think it's tragic when a man or a woman in marriage doesn't really even understand the other person's body. I challenge, especially couples that I counsel, I say, you need to study each other's bodies. You need to understand what makes a man tick sexually, what makes a woman tick sexually. You know, there is, uh, there is a difference. And unless you understand that about your spouse, you're not really going to uh, understand, the bi understand the biological realities about your spouse. You're not going to be very good at the sexual encounter. So you need to remember it's reproductive. It makes children, but it's also physiological. Men are wired differently than women when it comes to sexuality. And if you want uh, to be good in the marriage bed, 
you need to understand this reproductive and biological aspects of sex. There are lots of books out there that have diagrams that can explain these things. I commend them to you if you're ignorant of what that's about. The third R, if it's first, relational, second, reproductive, is three, sex is recreational. And the Bible's very, very clear about this. And that simply means that it's just plain fun. And it is. And it's supposed to be. And for example, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, you have this uh, wonderful statement. Proverbs 5, uh, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. And here there's two words that are, are really interesting in the Hebrew language. Where it says uh, in, in um, verse 19, may her breasts satisfy you. The Hebrew word for satisfy means tipsy. You get high when you're with your naked wife. But the next word word that says, may you be uh, captivated by her love, that word in the Hebrew language, <laughs> that doesn't mean tipsy. That means down in the gutter, drunk, with exquisite delight in your wife. And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it's commanded. This is the way it's supposed to be. And in the Song of Solomon, it's not just the man who is to, to, to delight, but in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 6, you have this, this, this portrayal of the beloved who is the wife here in, in verse 6. And we read, uh, he, uh, he says, she says, For I am faint with love. In the sexual encounter that's going on here, his left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. And I'll just tell you that it is erotic Hebrew poetry explaining why the wife is faint with love from her husband's lovemaking. It's recreational. Fourth R is that sex is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. And the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, shows us what, what the Bible calls, I believe, this mutuality principle between husband and wife. It says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, this is the reciprocal nature, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so there is this reciprocity principle, this mutuality principle, which says, you know what? My body is not just for me. This is not about me. This is about you and us. And so I am giving myself completely to you in order to bless you. It's reciprocal. Now, I tell you all these things because, well, many of us have a lot of baggage. Many of us have been abused 
or used. Many of us have used and abused others. Many of us are broken sexually. And just because of the recreational component, we've decided to abuse our sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage, and we've paid a price. And we also then fall into the rationalizations of the world that adultery and sexual activity outside of marriage really is not all that bad. It's okay. So the reason we take time on this is first to show the good in order to understand why the bad is so bad. Again, sex is like super glue. You use super glue right, it unites together. You use it wrong, it makes a mess. And Tim Keller uh, says so clearly in his book, why is adultery in all of its forms forbidden? Not because sex is bad, but because it is designed to be such a powerful force for good. And you will never understand why adultery is so bad unless you understand why sex in marriage is so good. Okay? That leads us then to point number three. What the writer, now what follows, you have this statement followed by a warning. Uh, A statement followed by a command. Keep your marriage bed pure, followed by a warning. And let's just look at this, keep your marriage bed pure. And Christians need to be told this. We have to talk about it. It's not healthy if the church never talks about guarding your heart and your eyes and your mind and your relationships. We'd be a bad church if we never discussed this. And time and again, the Bible begins discussions about sexuality with the phrase, do not be deceived. Why do you think the Bible has that phrase, do not be deceived, as it goes on to talk about sexuality? The answer is, because we're always fooling ourselves when it comes to this. Some of you know one of my favorite writers is a woman who has a weekly column in World Magazine, Andre Sue, a, a godly woman and a, a brilliant writer. And five years ago, she wrote an article, I think it was five years ago, called The Seduction of Andre Sue. And I read the article, and she tells about her experience back in, I think it was in the 1960s, when she first saw the movie Dr. Zhivago. Most of you are too young to know the movie. It won the Oscar. Most of you are too young to know that movie. But in that film, she said, the director, I believe his name was Lane, the director worked so artfully to present this married man, this Dr. Shivago, and his relationship with his wife in such a way that the wife, well, she was plain and uninteresting. And Shivago meets Laura. And Laura is beautiful and winsome. And well, yes, Shivago has a family, he has a son, but the director only showed the son for about 15 seconds in the movie that he was a relatively happy kid. And, and, and then, then uh, the, the, the movie is about these two people who are basically good people, Shivago and Laura. They're basically good people trying to do their best as they ride down the tracks 
as the engine is moving toward their inevitable union, an adulterous relationship, which is presented in a way, well, that Andre Seuss said, as I watched the movie for the first time in my life, I was cheering for adultery. The movie seduced me, she said. And that's what happens. That's why the Bible says, do not be deceived. We fool ourselves. Even, okay, I've only seen one episode of what I think Time Magazine calls the best sitcom of the year. It's called Parks and Recreation. I've watched one episode of it. And it was all about, well, it was all about these nutty religious people who were urging abstinence education, in particular with working with senior citizens. And the, and the religious people, well, they were mousy and they were, they were re- obviously repressed and unhappy and judgmental and self-righteous, probably hypocritical. And then, well, the stars of the show were all in favor of teaching safe sex and, and allowing people to enjoy themselves to the point that... Um, They mocked the book. The writers were really crass. They they mocked the book that the religious people were giving away. The title of their book was, So You Think You Know Better Than God. And um, by the end of the show, they were tossing condoms out into the audience saying, Who wants to party? And that was the way of the world. That's the way the world presents it. It says, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. Instead, the warning here, the command here is guard your hearts and keep your marriage bed pure. And I could go on at great length about this, but in Stephen Arterburn's excellent book, it sold a gazillion copies, it's called Every Man's Battle. I think he has a book, Every Woman's Battle. Uh, He simply says this. He says, look, the crux of it is men especially... You need to learn how to bounce your eyes. You can't walk around with your eyes closed. But when your eyes fall on a sexy, engaging uh, person, you, have to, you can't do like the fighter pilots do, which is lock in. Do you know what I mean? When the fighter pilot is out and you watch the, the Top Gun movies and they're, they're trying to get the enemy in their sights and then all of a sudden the computer on their screen goes boop, 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 boop. What does that mean? Locked in. He's locked in. What Arterburn says is don't lock in. Instead, you bounce your eyes, you bounce your mind away from the fantasies that you so naturally uh, would lock into. And that... Well, that is a practice of discipline, Christian discipline. You you need the Holy Spirit to do that, don't you? I need the Holy Spirit for that. You need the Holy Spirit for that. But you learn to bounce your eyes and your, your mind away from those sexual fantasies that are not about your wife. And you need to lock in on your wife. And again, if you're not married yet, you keep yourself pure in the way that you're going to be locked in on the spouse that God has for you. Okay? So, you guard your heart and your mind, and that's how you keep the marriage bed pure. 
and you set up boundaries like the woman Sally did as she drove away from the woodworker in his garage, and you set up the boundaries in order to protect yourself. Listen, Nina is about to start a new women's Bible study in the book of Proverbs. On Wednesday mornings, they're going to study the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is really about two kinds of fools. Two kinds of fools. First fool is the heavy-handed fool. This is the, the rebel who says, I know what God says, but I'm going my way. I'm going to live life my way. And he just stumbles right over the cliff willingly and purposefully. But the other kind of fool is the simpleton. Who's the simpleton? The simpleton is the person who just doesn't see the signs. Watch out. Danger. Don't go there. And the simpleton just doesn't see it. And he goes over the cliff too. Keep the marriage bed pure by enjoying the four R's of sexuality and by learning how to bounce your mind and your eyes and focus on the spouse that God has given you. And then after that command comes the warning, point number four. And could it be any clearer? God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And we have this very sober warning that there are consequences to sexual immorality. Younger people, usually they just, they, they'll be like the simpleton on this. They just don't believe that there are consequences to sexual immorality. Older people who've lived a few years understand there are consequences. There are consequences in this life, and there are consequences in the judgment day to come. And the Bible's very clear about both, that there are consequences to, uh, to sexual immorality, uh, both in this life and at the judgment day. And you don't have to be a therapist to figure this out. You don't need to be a rocket scientist. Just look around you at what happens to prominent politicians in the news who engage in extramarital sexual activity, and what happens to them? Their marriage is destroyed. Adultery destroys marriage. Adultery destroys families and harms children. Adultery ruins friendships. So often, both if, if the friends are engaged or the friends of the people where there are wounded victims, and adultery ruins friendships. Adultery ruins reputations. Proverbs teaches this. It ruins reputations. And it says in 1 Corinthians 6, it's actually a sin against your own body. All of these things are realities, consequences, serious consequences to sexual immorality and adultery. It's quite a list, isn't it? Destroys marriages, destroys families, destroys friendships, destroys reputation. It's a sin against your own body. Wow. But then it says, in the life to come, on the day of judgment. And here we have passages like Galatians 5.21 or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 that says, those who act in this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be in the kingdom of God if you're committed to a lifestyle of sexual immorality. 
that is your fundamental commitment that becomes your Lord. And whatever your words might say about religion, there's this warning here. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, at the very end of the Bible, if marriage is established at the beginning of the Bible as holy and pure, in Revelation 21, verse 8, we read this about this long list of people who are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And who's on that list? But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, and now the pornos, the sexually immoral, along with those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fire, in the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So people often say, I don't believe in judgment. God, God wouldn't judge people. God wouldn't judge me. And I certainly don't believe in hell. Have you ever met someone who said that? I hear that. Why would, why would someone say, I don't believe God's going to judge me. I don't believe in hell. What do you think's going on inside of their mind? What I found is that when you really peel back the layers, the person who says that finds the idea of God judging their hearts so morally repugnant, so abhorrent to them that they have to deny His existence. They have to deny the reality of His holiness in order just to live with themselves. And so... Even if they say there is a God, they want to deny His holiness and His justice. So what I do is I say, well, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, well, I believe in God. And then I say, well, then where is Hitler? That's what I say. Well, where do you think Hitler is right now once he met God? And they say, oh, Hitler's in hell. He'd have to be in hell. Yeah. Would God be good if Hitler wasn't in hell? God would not be good if Hitler wasn't in hell. (laughs) If God just winked at what he did. But then I say, you know, but what about you and me? Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have. Many times. Well, if you've told many lies, what does that make you? A liar. Did you ever take something that didn't belong to you? Yeah, especially when I was a kid, as a teenager, but sometimes as an adult. How many times? Many times. Well, what does that make you? A thief. I said, Jesus says that if you look at a woman, just look at her with lust in your heart. And he's talking about that locked-in moment of a woman that's not your wife. What does Jesus say you are if you've done that? Jesus says, you're an adulterer. Oh, have you ever done that? Yeah, yeah, I have. What does that make you? An adulterer. And then I say, does that make you comfortable with the prospect that you're going to stand before a holy God on a day of judgment to assess your life before him? 
Is God going to give you justice? Would He give me justice? What does God see when He sees your heart? And that leads to point five in the sermon outline, and it's this. Did you know that there's something you can do in this life before the judgment day? That because of God's kindness to you, you can have your sins forgiven. Do you know what God did for sinners? Do you know? He sent His Son into the world, who is called the Bridegroom for His bride. He sent His Son into the world, who was perfect and pure, and who lived the life we should have lived and then died the death we should have died, taking my sins upon Himself, taking your sins upon Himself. Oh, friends, I call you to look, look with the eyes of your heart to Jesus Christ, who's the faithful lover, who forgives, redeems, and heals the sinner. For you see, the God who designed sexual wholeness, the God who designed the marriage bed is the God who designed redemption for those of us who find themselves broken sexually or otherwise. And this is good news. Do you know this? What should the Christian do as we live our life, as you leave here today? It's two things. We come clean and we stay clean. Come clean and stay clean. And it's actually simple. It's not easy to do, but it's simple. Simple. You join King David in Psalm 51. And David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What do you do? You come clean with God. You be honest with God. If you're here today and you say, I've never lusted and I've never struggled with sexual impurity, and that may be the case for you, okay, then maybe you, I just hope the music blessed you earlier in the service. But those of us who want to see our marriage beds made whole, those of us who want to learn how to love the person of the opposite sex in a way that's respectful and nourishing, honoring to God, well, we need to come clean and ask for the forgiveness of our sins. Name them what they are. Stop being self-deceived. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through the cross, through the cross. And then we stay clean. And the way you stay clean is you seek every day to live your life before His face. You live before God. I'm not saying that you will be perfect tomorrow or every day for the rest of your life, but Jesus trains us. Jesus trains you. If your eye is tempted to look, learn to bounce your eyes. If your hand is tempted to touch what it should not touch, pull it back. If your feet are tempted to go where they should not go, then walk away. And lock in to your husband. Lock in to your wife. 
and love them like the faithful bridegroom has loved you. Would you do that? Aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the pure one, the one who heals and forgives? Let's come to Him now. Let's pray together. Let's offer Him our hearts. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You that You know us. You know us better than we know ourselves, and You still love us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray for the marriages, our marriages, those of us who are married. And we pray for our future marriages, those of us who are yet to marry. That you would teach us about the relational, reproductive, recreational, and reciprocal nature of that marriage bed as the Bible describes it. And that there would be exquisite joy with that glue that unites husband and wife together. We pray for ourselves, O Lord, when we are like the woman in the story who finds, when we find ourselves in a compromising situation, that we would flee that temptation, that we would have boundaries that are right and good and helpful. And we pray for those of us who have been damaged, our reputations, our families, our very hearts and minds by abuse, by being used or using others. We ask you to forgive us. And we believe, Lord, you can make us new. You can make us new, and you will do that as we walk with you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we as a church family would encourage and help each other to be accountable. We give ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.